And recently I was talking to her and her sister about uh, the, the wastewater situation because when she flushes her toilet, the raw sewage is straight piped out onto the ground just outside the back of her mobile home. That's Catherine Coleman Flowers talking about her friend Pam Rush just a few years ago in a documentary called The Accidental Environmentalist. Catherine Flowers is our guest today on Living Downstream, the environmental justice podcast. COVID-19, the disease caused by the novel coronavirus, has magnified the impacts of poverty, climate change, health disparities, and the lack of adequate sanitation in marginalized communities around the world. 2020 was quite a year for Catherine Coleman Flowers. She spent most of it locked down like the rest of us, and she released her first book, Waste, You just heard an excerpt. And she was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant for her work in Alabama and around the world. For years now, Flowers has been drawing attention to what happens after toilets are flushed. It's not a sexy topic, but that's really the point. Some issues are so important to our lives that we don't think about them enough, and some are kind of yucky. And this is both. And it's worth listening to Flowers on these subjects, or really anything at all. I met Catherine Flowers remotely for the first time on January 6th. I was the first to tell her about the Capitol insurrection that afternoon. And then we talked at length on January 22nd, two days after the inauguration of President Joe Biden, and again this spring. Researching for our conversation, I found this discussion in the second presidential debate held in October 2020 and flagged it as perhaps the first mention of environmental justice in such a forum. President Trump, people of color are much more likely to live near oil refineries and chemical plants. In Texas, there are families who worry the plants near them are making them sick. Your administration has rolled back regulations... NBC's Kristen Welker went on to ask, Your administration has rolled back regulations on these kinds of facilities. Why should these families give you another four years in office? Trump's answer, quote, The families that we are talking about are employed heavily... Employed heavily, and they're making a lot of money, more money than they've ever made. And he went on to some slightly irrelevant points about keeping the price of oil high. Now, when it came to Biden's answer, he was ready. My response, he said, is that those people live on what they call fence lines. They live near chemical plants and oil plants and refineries that pollute. It's not about what you're paying them, he said, but how you keep them safe. So what do you do? You impose restrictions on the pollutants coming out of those fence-line communities. communities. So were you there listening in that moment? And and, and I wonder what you think or or what, especially what you think now, that President Biden will have an opportunity to work toward environmental justice in some of the communities that you know very well. Uh, I'm very optimistic I'm very optimistic because, first of all, it was discussed in a presidential debate, but even more so is that the person who became the president of the United States, uh, when he announced his climate team, he talked about environmental justice. And he mentioned one of the communities that I think is a, is a poster representative of uh, environmental justice 
issues and that is uh, Cancer Alley. So I'm optimistic because I know that Gina McCarthy, who I served with on the Biden task force, is going to push for environmental justice and also talk about the health impacts. You know, one of the things that former President Trump talked about is how people were earning money. Well, drug dealers earn money too, but the impact on the community is devastating. And it's the same thing that happens in these EJ communities that there's a contingency of folk that earn money, but the life, the quality of life for people in the community are impacted for generations to come because of the health issues. And now we see COVID has devastated a lot of those communities that are these fence line and frontline communities who have contaminated water and air. And we have to change that. And I'm glad to see this administration take steps toward doing that. Um, Catherine, bring us down to earth, and I mean that almost literally. Take us to Lowndes County in Alabama, where you've done so much of your work. What I see in Lowndes County are a lot of hardworking people who are struggling every day to just to make ends meet. The, the wastewater situation, the raw sewage on the ground, when we found evidence of hookworm, uh, which is a tropical parasite that's associated with poverty, in Alabama. This is in plain sight. A lot of these people haven't been out of these ivory towers to actually go into these communities and see how people are living. That's an excerpt from a short documentary about Catherine Flowers called The Accidental Environmentalist. We heard a bit before and we'll hear some more later. It follows her return home to Lowndes County, Alabama to become a warrior for environmental justice. I thought Flowers introduced herself fittingly at the start of her new book, so I asked her to read a few paragraphs from the opening of Waste. A big part of my work now is educating people about rural poverty and environmental justice, how poor people are trapped in conditions no one else would put up with, both in Alabama and around the United States. Those conditions, polluted air, tainted water, untreated sewage, make people sick. They make it hard for children to thrive and adults to succeed. I tell people about the ways climate change is making those conditions even worse and even more widespread, and that they are now starting to afflict people who aren't used to that kind of misery. Wow. <laughs> that statement uh, really sets the scene for us to get to know you and your life and your life's work in this book. Can you tell me a little bit now with that as a background about your growing up in Alabama? It seemed to me that your parents were part of a world where they faced injustice every day and yet they worked with others for justice. What did that mean to them and to you growing up? Well, I think that was a part of our um, orientation as a family to always help others no matter what condition we were in. And we used our experiences and what we learned to, to extend them and, and empower others. Um, my parents were both very active in the civil rights movement. My father was a native of Lowndes County, Alabama. My mother was a native of Otago County, Alabama. Uh, and we were very, very much steeped in family and community. And I believe that a lot of the values that are now a part of me and my work definitely came from my parents. 
I, I wanted to also mention that my father, you know, lately when people talk about patriots and who a patriot is, my father was a true patriot because the fight, despite the fact that he uh, encountered injustice and told me that he was really activated by the murder of Emmett Till, but he was, he was a Korean era veteran who flew the flag every day and taught us about the constitution and felt that we were entitled to each and every privilege that went along with becoming an American citizen. And I think to him and my mother, that's what justice meant. Flower's journey took her from Talladega College to Alabama State University and then on to Howard University in Washington, D.C. She earned a bachelor's degree in 1986 from Cameron University in Oklahoma and worked as a teacher in Washington and Detroit before returning home to Lowndes County in 2000. It was there she began the work that has carried her through until today and made her a distinctive voice in the national and international fight for environmental justice. And I had my own experience when I was called by the health department to the home of a young woman that they were threatening to arrest. She was in her 20s and pregnant. Uh, and when I went to the back of her home, she had a pit full of raw sewage where when she flushed her toilet, it emptied into this pit. It was during the month of October and it was teeming with mosquitoes. I was bitten. And uh, after that, my body broke out in the rash. I went to my, my, my primary care provider and asked to be tested to make sure that I didn't get anything because I could literally see the blood stains on my stockings where the, the mosquitoes had bit me. But when my butt, body broke out into this rash, I started to wonder, you know, could I have gotten something? And my test came back negative, but I had this rash on my body. And I asked my, my provider, I said, is it possible that I have something that American doctors are not testing for? And she said, yes. So, I, I've always been a constant reader of the New York Times, and I saw an op-ed piece that was written by Dr. Peter Hotez. This was afterwards, and Dr. Hotez uh, talked about tropical diseases coming to our, to our shores. And, and then I remember, um, you know, there had been discussions about Ebola and other kinds of things. And, 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 and that made me wonder, you know, is it possible that there could be things festering here that we, we're not looking for. So I, I Googled him. I Googled him um, and, and got his email address and I wrote him, told him about my experiences. It was just, just so happened he was going to be in Atlanta, which is about two hours away the next week. So he invited me to come there and I met him and he said, we're going to look for hookworm. I said, wow. I said, why did you write that op-ed? He said, I wrote it because I was hoping that a Catherine Flowers would get in touch with me. He said, because every time I talk about this, this issue and these tropical diseases, they want to blame immigration. I said, well, I can take you to a place where people have not been outside of the country. And if we find something there, they cannot blame immigration. 
And that's how we ended up doing the parasite study. He sent his parasitologist, Dr. Dr. Uh, Rogelio Mejia. And we actually went to homes uh, with people that were from the community, which is one of the principles of environmental justice, because they were not going to trust an outsider. Uh, and I'm also from the community, but we went there, talked to folk and got them to give us fecal uh, agreed to give us fecal and blood samples. We also collected soil and water samples and they were tested using PCR technology, which was new at the time, which is something that they talk about all the time now with COVID. So using PCR technology, they found evidence of, of a hookworm and other tropical parasites in the samples that we had collected. And that um, it, went, it was peer reviewed. Uh, we kept that information for three years and when the story was finally broken, it was broken by The Guardian and it made international news. Boy, and ever since that day, there's been a, a light that, that's shown on this uh, problem. What, you know, it, it's the solutions, and maybe we'll talk about this a little more later, but the solutions to this issue seem like they're somewhat elusive. I know in your book, there's every now and then you'll say, okay, this person, you know, agreed to help someone with a septic system or a new tank or knew this or knew that. And yet the obstacles are, are still enormous. Because they're systemic. You know, we have an economic system that was built on free labor or almost free labor. And we see that playing out today with COVID, with the essential workers being the ones that are impacted the most, but they make the least amount of money. And the people that profited from even the stimulus plan were those people that didn't need any money. Uh, so that that's part of the problem. And, and these, these systems, I think, are, were, were erected and put in place to the point that they've been here for so long that we don't even recognize them anymore. We just go along with it. You know, I, I think one of the things that COVID was one of the magnifying glasses, but the other magnifying glass was what happened on January the 6th, when there were people that violated the constitution and desecrated the halls of Congress and were able to stay there uh, without even being challenged for a few hours. Whereas I have to be concerned about men in my family being pulled over for no reason at all, and potentially losing their lives. When they've been patriots like my father, who served in the military, but yet it doesn't matter when it, when it comes to, to their rights. And, and these are the kinds of systems that have existed. And I think that what happened on January 6th, as bad as it was, showed the rest of the world what we've been trying to articulate for a very long time. So. I think because of that, there's renewed commitment to, to unpacking these systems and finding solutions so that maybe in my next book, I can talk about the people that have benefited from removing these obstacles out of the way. You mentioned uh, visits uh, through the years to Pam Rush's uh, house with uh, Reverend Dr. Barber and, and others, Bernie Sanders and others. Tell me a little bit, if you don't mind, about her and her story and bring it up uh, to the present day, if you would. Well, Pamela was, um, when I met Pamela, I had received a call, uh, actually a message on Facebook from her sister, 
who asked me to um, to help her. And I went to meet her and I mean, I was so moved by the situation she was in. She was living in a single white mobile home that uh, she was still paying a mortgage on that they had gotten in the 1990s. And the, the cost of it was about $127,000. She still owes 20,000 on it and is worth 2,000. That's an example of the type of structural poverty that exists. And recently I was talking to her and her sister about uh, the, the wastewater situation because when she flushes her toilet, the raw sewage is straight piped out onto the ground just outside the back of her mobile home. The home was um, full of mold and mildew. Uh, she had one room that was to the left that uh, she had stored things in, but you can see mold and mildew was all over everything. She told, talked about stuffing rags in, uh, in holes in the house to keep opossums from coming out. She had traps that she would put down to trap the opossums because she was afraid that one of them had scratched her. She was a diabetic that it would be, you know, that she could potentially get rabies or get sick. Her daughter was sleeping with a CPAP machine and she was at that time, she was not even a teenager. And I had never seen a child sleeping with a CPAP machine, have a sleep apnea and respiratory issues that I'm sure partially was related to the fact that they were living in this, this home that they should not have been in. Yes, I've been telling my story. I've been to Washington, D.C. and talked to the country and stuff like that. I'm poor, I don't have, I don't have nothing. I try to take care of my two kids. And the capitalists are ancient to me too. She tried to help everybody in, you know, in Lowndes County. And, Around, around the world, you know, she tried to help you. And she asked for help. And I told her that I would do the best I could. I couldn't make any promises, but I wanted her to tell her story because I was so moved, I cried. Actually, it took a while for me to go there without crying each and every time. Uh, but she told me that she was willing to do it. And she was very, she was a shy person, but she was, she did allow people to come and see it firsthand and teach them something that they probably would not have known had she not opened her door and her world to them. And I was concerned when COVID happened, especially about a lot of people in Lyons County because you know they're living around raw sewage and they're living in situations where um, they have homes that are not safe and people can't socially distance because they're so small. They're working as essential workers. And in this particular case, a lot of Pam's family members were essential workers working in factories. I don't know how she got COVID, but she got COVID. Two years ago, Pamela Rush came to the U.S. Capitol and told her story of living in extreme poverty on behalf of the new Poor People's Campaign, which captured her statement. From NPR's All Things Considered, September 3rd, 2020. My name is Pamela Rush. I'm from Lowndes County, Alabama. And I live in a mobile home with my two kids. Her story is a familiar one across the rural South. But Rush became an activist who fought for justice in impoverished areas. We're mentioning her now because she is another person who died this summer from complications of COVID-19. She was 50 years old. Pamela Rush had diabetes, and her daughter has breathing issues made worse by living in a mobile home racked with mold. Raw sewage pooled in the yard, and Rush was deeply in debt because of predatory loans. I feel bad because I don't have stuff to give my children. I'm paying all these bills, 
and they need school clothes and stuff. They'd be asking me for like can you her distant cousin, Catherine Coleman Flowers, heard about the situation and went to visit Rush. She showed me how she was living. She also told me about the predatory lending that she and her families were victims of. In addition to being family, Coleman Flowers is the founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice. I asked her, would she mind sharing her story with people that I would bring there who could potentially help her? Pamela's story, and I thought then that Pamela's story was really um, a stark view of inequality in this nation. Pamela Rush said yes. So Bernie Sanders came to Alabama. Jane Fonda came. They saw the cracks and holes in the mobile home. They saw the traps Rush put out to keep wild animals from invading. They learned that Rush had no car, so had no easy way to get her daughter to Birmingham to see doctors. Reverend William J. Barber II visited, too. He's a co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, and he appeared with her that day on Capitol Hill. Pamela let us come in her house courageously. She said, I want the nation maybe to help somebody else. A predatory lender made her pay $120,000 for a single white house that she's still paying for. Catherine Coleman Flowers says Pamela Rush spoke with authenticity, like Fannie Lou Hamer did during the Civil Rights Movement. She was kind of the Fannie Lou Hamer of this whole movement around helping people to understand poverty and understand that it's not because of personal failings, it's because of traps or systems that we put in place to make it impossible for someone to escape it. Pamela Rush died in Selma, Alabama, of complications of COVID-19. As Catherine and I wrapped up in late January, I asked her my usual closing question, whether there was anything she had hoped we'd talk about that I didn't ask. Well, one one of the things I like to mention is that I like to reclaim what faith really means. Please, because I know I promised we would talk about that and I really wanted to, so thanks for reminding me. A lot of people have, have used faith to enable corrupt politicians. But faith to me means to be committed to helping other people and helping them in such a way that you stay on that course no matter what adversities you have to, to deal with. And faith to me means helping the least fortunate, to helping the poor and the sick and the elderly. And faith to me never meant, I never thought that I would see anyone who claimed to be a Christian to say that elderly people should suffer and die for the economy. So I think that Christians and those of us that are uh, not just Christians, but people from the faith community need to reclaim what faith really is. And that we do not allow false prophets or people who are cloaking themselves in faith to destroy humanity. Because one of the things that I've learned in faith, that there's good and evil. And if we could just go back and read and study for ourselves, I think that we will all find purpose. And part of that purpose is being able to give back to somebody other than ourselves. And, and that's what faith means to me. And faith doesn't mean to enable a demagogue or a number of demagogues to be able to deprive others of access, access to, to justice, to peace and justice. And if we, those of us that believe in faith, my father told me, my, my, my father, 
because uh, I know I sound like I was talking about the father, but my father always told me that faith the size of a grain of mustard seed can move mountains. And he said, Catherine, if you make one step, God will make two. And I hope that my life has been exemplary of that. Several months later, I talked again with Catherine Coleman Flowers. It was already clear that the Biden administration was making a significant effort to weave environmental justice into every relevant corner of government. Ambassador Susan Rice was chosen to lead one aspect of the effort. Today we confront a profoundly connected set of crises, a relentless pandemic, a struggling economy, urgent demands for racial equity and justice, a climate in need of healing, a democracy in need of repair. These crises have ripped the blinders right off the systemic racism that exists in America. The American people now can see clearly black, Latino, Native Americans, nearly three times more likely to die from COVID and more likely to get, get COVID to begin with. Black and, black and Latino unemployment rates, too, hot, too large, too high. Communities of color are left to ask whether they'll ever be able to break the cycle. We're in good times, they lag. In bad times, they're hit first and the hardest. And in recovery, they take the longest to bounce back. Vice President-elect Harris and I knew we'd have our work cut out for us when we got elected. But we also knew we could build a team that would meet this unique and challenging moment in American history. Some are Welcome to the first meeting of the very first White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Some of you have been speaking truth about environmental justice for decades. Others here are speaking out on behalf of a generation that's fighting for your very future on this planet. And today, all of you are making history. The President and I are committed to addressing environmental justice and environmental injustice in everything we do. Because we know we cannot achieve health justice, economic justice, racial justice, or educational justice without environmental justice. You just heard Ambassador Susan Rice, President Joe Biden, and Vice President Kamala Harris. Among those being welcomed to the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, informally called WEJAC, was Catherine Coleman Flowers. The group is a dream team of advocates and was established by an executive order issued just days after Flowers and I talked in late January. As always, Flowers spoke up at the meeting for her neighbors in Alabama. For an example, uh, I was in, I was called to be on a meeting, be in a meeting here in the city of Montgomery with uh, uh, someone from the mayor's office because there's a part of Montgomery that never got wastewater treatment. They had water, but they never got the wastewater treatment, their own septic systems. And the people that run the water and sewer were basically saying to, the, to all these black communities, you want, if the developers didn't put you on sewer when they built the community, and we know they probably didn't even offer that to black communities when they were building these communities. We're not going to do it. I mean, that's basically what they said. When I checked in with Flowers in April, she believed that the administration was on the right track and had been listening to her and other advocates who believe that water improvements should be the keystone of any infrastructure plan. The Biden administration has proposed 100 
I think it's $111 billion for water and wastewater infrastructure. That's major. And I am very thankful because I feel that they listen. They listen to the cry that I have made for about 20 years. And, and it was included in the American Jobs Plan. And, and I know that everyone is looking at the, the big infrastructure items, but these are basic infrastructure items that everybody needs. And there's an emphasis on rural wastewater and water infrastructure. And I'm very thankful for that. In thinking about this exciting time, uh, in thinking about how things have accelerated in your life, especially in this past year, um, when you wake up in the morning, what's, what's the first thing that you think about? And, and uh, when you go to bed at night, what's the last thing? I'm thankful to God that I'm still here. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I thank him for blessing my family, for keeping them safe. And I pray that he protects my family and my friends. Um, and I, I just pray that, you know, for us to have a society where there's more equality and and that we find solutions to these long-term problems and I'm I'm very very concerned about climate change and I'm very very concerned about racial justice and I pray for solutions This episode of Living Downstream Catherine Coleman Flowers Warrior for Environmental Justice was written and produced by me, Steve Mencher, for Mench Media and Northern California Public Media. Special thanks to Catherine Coleman Flowers and her team. The Living Downstream theme music is by David Shulman, and we also heard excerpts from his Five Lives and Damon's Dream. Thanks to Paolo Pavan for Do It via Tribe of Noise. Thanks to MSNBC, NPR, where you can find all the information about this podcast on NPR One, and the producers of The Accidental Environmentalist for their generosity in allowing us to use excerpts from the film. Chris Lee is radio executive producer, and Darren Lachelle is the president and CEO of Northern California Public Media. Subscribe to Living Downstream on Apple Podcasts, comment and rate it there, and find it wherever you get your podcasts. Visit our website at norcalpublicmedia.org living. Living Downstream thanks our sponsors who make this podcast possible. A list is available at norcalpublicmedia.org. In coming weeks, we'll hear stories from Oakland and the Salton Sea in California. We'll explore cancer clusters in Houston, Texas, and visit with poultry workers in North Carolina. Subscribe today and pass this podcast on to a friend. See you next time on Living Downstream, the environmental justice podcast.